Welcome to The Pharmacy Benefit, a podcast where we talk about issues impacting patients, consumers, and affordable access to prescription drugs and better healthcare through the work being done by Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs. I'm JC Scott. Thank you for joining me. Our topic today is especially relevant and timely. We're all navigating continued uncertainty as our country deals with the COVID-19 pandemic. But as we look at the role of prescription drugs in the supply chain, there are reasons for hope as well as important considerations as we work to balance patient access and avoid drug shortages. I know that among the many questions Americans are asking right now is whether they're gonna be able to continue to get their prescription drugs and how they can do so while practicing social distancing. Many are also wondering whether, if they get the COVID-19 virus, they'll be able to afford the treatment. Joining me today to talk about these questions and others is Tim Wentworth, the president of Cigna Health Services. Tim's responsibilities include oversight of Cigna's Express Scripts Pharmacy Benefit Management business, their home delivery pharmacy, and subsidiaries, including their specialty pharmacy and medical benefit management. From this perch, Tim has visibility into a broad cross-section of several important aspects of our healthcare system. Tim has a particular passion for service, excellence, and innovation. Under his leadership, Cigna is working to put patients first as we all work to respond to COVID-19. Tim has held a number of leadership roles in the PBM industry over the years and also serves on the board of directors for the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, or PCMA. Tim, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to your insights. Great to be here with you, JC. Look forward to the conversation. Why don't we start by letting our listeners get to know you a little bit, Tim, and, and have you tell us a bit more about yourself. How did you first get involved with healthcare and what led you to the PBM industry? Well, like most kids, I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to work at a PBM, but, uh, you know, I I found my way here in sort of a very direct way coming from the payer side. And so a long part of my career I had spent in human resources and had had to defend benefit cost increases as far back as the 80s and 90s when, you know, there was some significant government intervention being contemplated at that time. And so I'd had a career in consumer products across a couple of different companies when an ex-colleague in 1998 called me and said, uh, I think you'd be perfect for Medco, uh, which was at the time uh, one of the major PBMs and they were owned by Merck uh, at the time. You know, I said, well, I don't know a thing about sort of Medco. Merck's a great company. Uh, you know, I know you're happy there. And he said, you've been a buyer of benefits. You understand what the challenges are. And our customers are all big buyers of benefits, whether they be health plans or they be large employers, governments, labor units, et cetera. And so the job was to uh, take care of the entire book of paying clients, the book of business that provide the benefits to the members. And uh, so in 1998, I I joined and would never have guessed, I guess, that uh, we'd be sitting here now 22 years later with such an important role for the industry still. It's evolved a ton over the last 22 years, but the role of driving affordability, driving safety, driving access, driving innovation, frankly, and celebrating innovation when pharma is able to price it right uh, all sort of continue to be pretty fundamental to what we do. That's terrific. We can we can hear you the passion that you have for the career that you've had in this industry. I want to tap into that a little bit before before I do. I'm just just to, because we haven't talked in a little bit, Tim. How are you and your family doing in our new shelter-in-place world? And as as you've approached this environment as a leader now of Cigna Express Scripts, how are you managing this situation for your employees? 
I appreciate the question. We obviously, Robin and I quickly decided we better take care of ourselves and our kids first, and then we'll be in a position to take care of others, including all of the employees that uh, that I'm responsible for. So we sheltered in place in mid-March in northern New Jersey here. It's where two of our three girls are. We actually have my youngest who's just uh, just starting a doctoral program uh, in New York City, actually, uh, living with us with her guy. So we're here. We're uh, safe. We are being thoughtful about uh, our interactions uh, outside the four walls of the house. And I'm finding working at home to be, you know, tremendously efficient. I'm looking forward to one day getting back into the office, but uh, but we're doing well. As it relates to Cigna, We've been really focused on, and particularly my part of the business, in making sure, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, that we keep our employees safe, that we keep our customers taken care of and our patients well sort of uh, supplied with the drugs that they need, and, and really going about the work that we do pretty much uninterrupted. We saw certainly a spike in volume that we had to manage through sort of in the back half of March. But besides that sort of unique single spike, what it's been is all about being there for our patients and making sure our employees felt safe and engaged. And we moved tens of thousands of employees to home in very, very short order. Amazingly, we did an engagement survey recently, and they were feeling actually as or more engaged than they had about a year ago when we did our more formal survey. And, and that was at a very, very high level. And so we feel we've done a good job taking care of our employees and then most importantly, taking care of the patients. Uh, we have a thousand nurses, for example, that are going into homes. And where we can't convert those to televisits, we have to make sure we've got the PPE they need. We need to make sure that patients are comfortable with them coming in, that it's an effective and efficient visit. And we've been able to continue to maintain all of that through this process. And so, you know, it continues. We raised pay 20% for folks who were not able to go work at home for example, to let them know that we recognize that they don't have some of the flexibility that some of their colleagues would have, but how important it is that what they're doing have them be in an office or visiting patients' homes. So again, we're kind of learning as we go a little bit, trying to lead and uh, listening very carefully to our employees to make sure that, uh, that we're tuned into their concerns. Well, it sounds like you've created a great place to work, and you're obviously uh, thinking about what your, your folks need, as we all are in, at this difficult time. And what I also heard, Tim, is as you talked about your your history of getting into the industry, both as a purchaser of benefits and a provider of benefits, I could hear in in the words that you chose your focus on the consumer and the patient who's on the on the end of that. That seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, really front of mind for you in particular during this time as you pursue the company's mission. And I'm I'm curious how you shifted at a high level, how you shifted the 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 Cigna posture. Uh, as it relates to COVID-19 to to take on that mantra of patient first? Well, you know, I, I've got to say, I'm fortunate that uh, our industry, by the way, I think has done a great job of keeping that focus on, on the individual patient and the reason that, frankly, we exist. Uh, Cigna clearly had that same appreciation. And so from that standpoint, you know, I have a group of leaders that I work with and for that are very aligned around making sure that we take care of the member, the patient, whatever you want to call them, all the time. 
So it's not a big transitional shift in thinking to during this, this pandemic to say, what do we need to do different? Now, we certainly have asked ourselves, what do we need to do more of, less of, you know, start, stop, continue kind of thinking. But it's been from a very long history, both inside of Cigna and inside of Express Scripts, of putting the patient first and having that really drive how the business success is derived. And so, you know, as we've worked through this and as we've thought about our employees, we've concurrently thought about our patients. And I mean, as you know, I was at the White House two months ago now because Cigna was the first company to actually waive the cost of testing for all patients. Again, bringing that access sort of mentality and and evolving it for the particular circumstances that we're in and making sure that every patient that should get a test doesn't stop and worry about what it's going to cost them. We've continued to challenge ourselves, and certainly as a member of the team, I've continued to challenge our team. Our industry continues to challenge itself to what more can we do? And you've seen broadly in healthcare and then specifically PBMs, you know, a continuation of things like waiving formulary things where there might be something that would be short of supply for a period of time. Uh, waiving refill too soon where it makes sense at an individual patient level where a pharmacist can consult and use his or her professional judgment to do that. So we've, again, evolved a lot of the practices of the PBM without really changing a bit the philosophy, which was patient first. Terrific. Thanks, Tim. So so let's get a little bit more granular and and let's I'm going to put myself in the in the role of the, the consumer or the patient here because I am. We all are and ask you a few questions that might be on our listeners' minds. So for my, for me, I rely on the daily dose of a statin to manage my cholesterol. That's that's a true story. Should I have any concern that I'm gonna run out of my supply? Should I be trying to get extra sh- supply? And what should I be thinking about when I, when I look ahead to my own needs for access? Well, I appreciate very much that question because I would want all of our listeners to know that first of all, foremost, they should be taking their statins. They should be taking their insulin. They should be taking the drugs that help them to stay healthy. More than ever now, we know this about this virus, which is it is brutal on folks who are not taking care of themselves. And so from the standpoint of of remaining on your drugs, you should do it. And you should do it knowing that the supply chain is there for you. You know, we've seen nothing as it relates to shortages for things like lisinopril, things that take care of your cholesterol, things that take care of your heart disease, things that take care of your depression, et cetera, et cetera. We've had a couple of of areas that we've watched. Uh, We've watched inhalers, but what we've seen is the FDA approving additional generics, and we've managed the supply chain to ensure we could continue to provide a safe supply of of, uh, inhalers to patients. We did for a period of time evaluate what they had on hand, and if possible, we cut back a little bit to be sure that we had more than enough. So again, the industry and our company very dynamically managing sort of the supply chain in the context of what we see. I think the other area we've been watching would be the drugs that would be potentially available to help COVID patients. And what we want to do is be sure to protect the patients that take those drugs today for other things. So hydroxychloroquine, for example, which is indicated and has long been indicated for rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, we wanted to protect those patients even as hospitals were looking to potentially add supplies of that in advance of some of the research that now appears to be maybe a bit more questionable as to whether that that particular drug is going to be therapeutically effective for the majority of patients. There's still some trials going on, but I know a couple of the major medical journals have both kind of declared not likely. And listen, there's no one more than uh, than us and me and you, I'm sure, 
who want to see a, an effective therapeutic. It's a key to our getting back to normal. But what we're watching for is where it looks like an existing drug that has existing patients on it may find uh, some additional benefit. That was the case, again, with inhalers a little bit, either in treating or recovering this disease. We're working upstage in the supply chain to ensure that we've got the right kind of availability. So you should be taking your drugs is my answer to you, JC. <laughs> well, I appreciate that that reassurance. And and the question or the issue that you raise of uh, drugs that may now be serving more than the purpose for which they were originally innovated, right? They're identified as potentially helping with with COVID. It seems from a just a political perspective that what we hear from policymakers is they want everybody who wants as much of any given drug to have access to it as, as possible, right? They're telling me as the individual patient on the chronic medication, go and get your 90-day supply. And they're also promising, if you're diagnosed with COVID, we're going to make sure you get this drug as well. Can you talk about, you talked about it some, but but talk further about how do you, how do you manage that balance? Are you having to think about some refill limitations in some instances? Are you having to deliver a message back to policymakers to help them understand the balancing act that you're going through? Well, we've engaged uh, very, very much, first of all, with policymakers, because as you can appreciate, this is not only federal, this is at the state level as well. Pharmacy law is, is by nat its nature state. And so we have engaged in every, every place where we saw a conversation going on, which may have led to a place where the intentions were good, but the unintended consequences could have actually caused more stockpiling, more shortages, without really benefiting patients incrementally in terms of having what they need. And so, you know, what we've reinforced is, first of all, a pharmacist has always been in a position to use his or her professional judgment, as I mentioned before, to override any sort of a refill too soon at it if the patient has a reason that, that that pharmacist is comfortable with clinically. That hasn't changed. And so, but we, we have worked with the states uh, to ensure that there's thoughtful refill uh, uh, regulatory environment. And we've been very successful at that as an industry. Uh, you and your team have been terrific in that respect. And, and I think it's important that our, our industry as an industry, including, by the way, retailers, frankly, including pharma, as it relates to nobody wanting to see unnecessary shortages that are caused by an unintended consequence. So we've, we've done that. What we've also done, though, again, watching the supply chain closely, and right now we haven't had to exercise these playbooks, but we would be able to open up for many drugs, formulary access to competitive products where, you know, in the time that's more normal, you may be able to choose one drug against another and both of them being therapeutically effective and therefore the one that's most cost effective being the one on formulary and the other not. But for the period of time of a pandemic like this, you would certainly open up therapeutics and we've got a playbook to do that. If for some reason we ran short, in fact, we've worked with a couple of our in industry colleagues who have mail service operations as well that aren't as robust as ours to back them up in case they ran out of this product or more likely if they had a temporary shutdown because of a, uh, an outbreak in one of their facilities. And so we agreed to work with each other to backstop each other. That's what you see the industry doing to really think through end to end patient continuity of care, whether it be regulatory, whether it be cooperating with our, uh, you know, what would our traditionally our competitors whether it be working with retail to make it easier for a patient to get something sent to their home from retail, something a lot of our plans don't normally allow. But again, you know, we've got playbooks that we've used for things like hurricanes. Those tend to be zip code kind of driven or regionally driven. We've just taken those playbooks and we've nationalized them and we've sort of uh, applied them in the case of you know, this national pandemic. Thanks, Tim. So if there's a couple of takeaways from what you just said, 
one, we should all have confidence in the supply chain. And it sounds like not only the PBM industry, but others up and down the supply chain are, are working together to try and create as much confidence for all of us as patients and consumers that we're going to have access to what we need. And two, that, that, that your company, Cigna Express Scripts, as well as others in the industry are showing a lot of nimbleness and flexibility right now, recognizing this, the situation we're in and maybe changing some of the things that are normally in place because you know it's what's necessary to get individuals through this current situation. Yeah, no question. And, you know, and I think we in, in our industry, but we as a company got out ahead of it early too. You know, we saw the toilet paper shortages, right? And that same psychology uh, times 10, because think about it, my health is way more important, frankly, I think, than my toilet paper supply. And so we were very concerned that, again, you would, you would get this shock to the system that would bear no resemblance to newly diagnosed patients driving incremental volumes. It would just be a bubble problem through the system. And we got out ahead of it early. We counseled patients. We counseled physicians. And uh, you know, I appreciate your characterization of it. We really have been very careful and thoughtful to get to a place that now, you know, as, as things kind of normalized a bit, and I recognize we're still you know, a long way away from being back to normal, we've seen the ability for the system to act responsibly and therefore not have any concern. The other call out, I would say, because this is probably not well known about PBMs and particularly about our company, is we had line of sight all the way up to the raw materials. So one of the early concerns was that the raw materials for some of these drugs, particularly generics, which as you know, are 90% of all drugs prescribed, were, were very, very heavily sourced in China or in some cases, India, both of which were going through their own situation. And while in the long term, I'm sure that the generic manufacturers are going to look at the diversification of their raw material base, you know, that's not in my, you know, in our company's uh, bailiwick, but we certainly were watching all the way upstream and seeing pretty confidently that we thought that we should be able to continue a good, reliable supply, which is what we've seen for most of these products. So again, longer term, you're going to hear a lot of talk, I think, about China and about reliability as a, as a source. And I think the pharma companies will look to do what you do after a, a disaster like this, which is diversify your, your, your sources in, in the context of a you know, a disaster recovery playbook, but uh, we, we've had good visibility to that, continue to, and are very comfortable we can continue to take care of patients. Tim, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you a, a little bit of a, a left field question, but it's, it's interesting as you talk about the dynamics around manufacturers, you mentioned retailers, meaning retail pharmacies, independent pharmacies. It's, it strikes me that the collaboration between stakeholders in the supply chain is really different right now compared to where it has been in recent months and years around issues related to cost. And I'm wondering, as you look forward, if you think that the new dynamic where the supply chain is working together on behalf of patients a little bit better right now, is, is that here to stay? Are we going to see any fundamental shifts in stakeholder dynamics going forward? You know, it's it's early early to be an optimist, but I'm always an optimist. I think that we've demonstrated clearly in these last several months that we are not anti-retail, not anti-pharma, not anti all the things that we get painted as, uh, that we know how to collaborate to create real value, real access, that we have a long history of it. We didn't just start doing it because there's a pandemic. It's just that's not what was capturing the headlines. And a lot of that was because, quite frankly, the, the, there is an affordability crisis in healthcare. Drugs are part of it, and we have a job to do as it relates to trying to make sure every dollar that's spent is spent wisely. And sometimes that pits us in a situation where we aren't going to completely agree with you know, some of those other players. But I think what we agree 
completely at a fundamental level with all of those other players on is the importance of taking care of the patient, the importance of the patient being healthy and getting what they need. And we all go about that with an incredibly, I think, strong and good intention, despite the fact we have significant at times disagreements over what value is and, and so forth. I think that's healthy. I think it continues to be a good thing. And all you have to do is take a look at, you know, the, the, the company Gilead, who was being so pilloried because of the price of, of their new highly innovative uh, hepatitis C drug several years ago, is now being looked to be, you know, truly potentially uh, a key part of getting this country back in business by virtue of having a therapeutic. And from my perspective, I don't see that those are two different conversations. I see those as one. I see Gilead is being amazingly responsive to this opportunity to help. I, I'd like to believe that they have a fundamental view. I believe they have a fundamental view that says access is critical. And I think we had the same goal. You've got this, this opportunity for us to continue to redefine what it means to collaborate. You saw us launch something uh, recently that required mega amounts of, of collaboration with retail pharma and us to put an uninsured program in place that, that has deep, deep discounts for, for uninsured uh, folks. That would not have happened if we were not able to collaborate. And I see that continuing. That's a great transition, Tim, because returning to the here and now, we are seeing a lot of people, a growing number of Americans losing their jobs. That's going to have an impact on their access to healthcare and their ability to continue to get medications. Can you talk a little bit about what Cigna has been thinking about to, to, to help those individuals? Sure, I appreciate it. We, um, we obviously have challenged ourselves both on the pharmacy side as well as actually on the major medical side. And so I don't have anything to announce today on the major medical side other than to tell you we are looking very, very thoughtfully at how we can benefit folks who have either can't afford their COBRA or uh, are in, truly in between jobs and don't have any insurance at all. Because we recognize while a lot of employers, thankfully, are trying to bridge their employees through and maintaining coverage, and we're working with those employers to drive affordability, for those patients that don't have the good fortune of that, we're, we're really trying to think through what's a, what's a way to demonstrate clearly that we can take care of them. And so on the pharmacy side, we launched last week a, a, a product, I guess I'll call it, called Parachute RX. And as I just said, it really brought together almost every major U.S. pharma company, all of whom had compassionate needs programs. But this brought those programs and the dollars that they would typically fund through those to a much more centralized, easy to access place for a patient. We then got retail pharmacies to come in, in, as well as our own mail service pharmacy and our inside RX cash chassis to drive generics discounts. And what we ultimately ended up with was something that was going to give these patients certainty that doesn't require them to buy anything or sign up for anything, but it caps their generic out-of-pocket cost on a monthly basis for almost every generic at $25. And 90% of all prescriptions are, are generic, as we know. And then it caps a significant number of very heavily used brands at $75 or less uh, per month. And so relative to going in and paying pure cash for these, these products, it's meaningfully valuable and gives those patients a chance to stay adherent and on their meds while they're bridging to their next employer while where they will hopefully then pick benefits back up again. And so again, that doesn't just happen in pharmacy. We're looking at doing something similar on the medical side as well. I know our industry continues to challenge itself around access beyond just for COVID patients testing and COVID patients treatment to look really at that unemployed group of Americans, now over 20 million plus, as, as a group of patients that also need to have a solution. And, and we're going to continue to challenge ourselves as we did last week by launching something like Parachute. 
That is terrific. So as you think about that program, and obviously in the here and now, we're seeing the unemployment trend lines heading in the wrong direction. So a program like that is absolutely necessary. How long do you envision that you're going to have that in place? Is there a life cycle to it? Yeah, I'd love to tell you that three months from now, we're not going to need it, but uh, I don't believe that to be the case. And so we announced that it's going to go to at least the end of the year. And I think you know, what we've shown you at every step of the way has been based on the facts and circumstances at the, at the time, you know, we're going to make the right decision to take care of patients. And if that means extending the program longer than that, I sit here fairly confident that our pharma partners, as well as our retail partners would stay in the game. And we would certainly continue to be happy to convene it and add our mail service to it, add our chassis for administration and so forth, and ensure that those patients have continuity of their care all the way until uh, this, this thing is much more behind us than it certainly is today and maybe at the end of the year. Tim, you mentioned a moment ago that as you were thinking about this program, you're also thinking about coverage for testing and treatment for COVID. You obviously have a, a great position to look across the healthcare industry. And I'm curious on two fronts, what's your optimism level for how quickly we're going to have a, a really effective treatment and or vaccine in place? And then how Cigna ESI is thinking about providing access to those once they, they come around. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We uh, we obviously are as hopeful as everybody is for a vaccine as well as, frankly, treatments that, that help a patient who have COVID. Th those are two key things along with, you know, I think adequate testing and uh, some of the contact tracing and so forth that uh, the people have talked about, social distancing, et cetera, to really getting us back on a meaningful track to normal. Um, and listen, nobody has a crystal ball. Certainly, I don't. I'm really encouraged by what you know, the WHO would claim there's 100 vaccines in development. I think just today in front of Congress, Dr. Fauci talked about something over half a dozen that he actually is, you know, is feeling good about in terms of kind of their continued progression. Uh, a company like Johnson & Johnson has decided to manufacture at risk. They're confident enough in their, uh, in their vaccine that they don't want to find out it works and then have to spool up manufacturing. They're taking the risk of actually making it concurrently with, with those trials. I, that's unprecedented. I think the science behind all of this is unprecedented. Uh, so we're optimistic. But that being said, not to be a Debbie Downer, but we've had AIDS around for over 40 years and there's not a vaccine today for it. So it is very hard to, to get a viral vaccine that, that can work. I don't know enough of the science of COVID to know sort of the unique challenges as it relates to getting this particular vaccine. But I know this, we are so fortunate to have the biotechnology companies and the pharma companies that we have who are working collaboratively with each other, as well as, you know, obviously working very aggressively to put a vaccine in place. I think, you know, the therapeutic side, there's all sorts of trials of different sorts of drugs going on right now. We've got to be smart about that. We can't jump to hoping something works. So we got to prove that it works. And if we do all that, back to the core of your question, you know, Cigna, and I believe our industry, is going to find ways to ensure access. There's simply no other answer. We can't have people not vaccinating themselves because of cost. We can't have people not taking care of themselves when they're sick or not getting tested if, they're, if they think they're sick uh, because of cost. Uh, it's a public health decision, more frankly, than it is a commercial decision. But I think the entire world is going to watch how we respond. And I think they're going to see the best of the U.S. healthcare system. We often get maligned 
But I think you've seen our industry up till now take extraordinary steps without being told to. And I think you'll see us continue to take extraordinary steps to ensure that we can maximally create this access that's going to be so necessary when we have those uh, therapeutics and those vaccines. That leads me, Tim, to probably my final question. I've taken a lot of your time today, and we appreciate how generous you've been with the conversation. It strikes me that we've been talking for about 30 minutes and we haven't talked about drug prices or rebates or some of the traditional topics that most people would associate with the, the PBM industry. As you reflect on what you want our listeners to take away from the conversation today and what you want viewers of the industry to take away from what our companies have been doing to, to step up and help patients, what, what is the one thing you would want to share? What are you most proud of that our industry has been doing that perhaps will help people have a broader understanding of the value of, of a PBM? Great last question. And you know what I'd say is this, our industry is pro-patient. We have our patients' backs and we can be painted as anti-pharma or anti-innovation and it is wrong. We are pro-access, we are pro-affordability, we are pro-headroom for real innovation so that pharma can really innovate and the system can afford it by getting the waste out that, uh, that would otherwise prevent that affordability. And so that there is nothing to our industry and nothing to our company that is more important than the health, the well-being, and the peace of mind of our patients. And we will get through this together. And I believe the patients will remember how well we did. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you. We'll, we'll leave it there. I wanna, I wanna thank you for joining us today. And I also wanna thank all of our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and we'll come back again. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all other major platforms. I'm JC Scott. And this is the Pharmacy Benefit. Mm -hmm.